Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Well, once again, my friend, we find that science is a two-headed beast. One head is nice. It gives us aspirin and other modern conveniences. But the other head of science is bad. Oh, beware the other head of science, Arthur! It bites! Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a nutrition and exercise physiology professor, and I'm a bodybuilding enthusiast. Uh, Fortress Fortney here. Robert, that is. Um, former editor at Muscle Mag, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. Actually, I just mailed in this morning my uh, renewal membership, guys, for the 2012 competitive season here in Canada. So, Congrats, Rob. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. Um, Founder of Strength Guild, LiftForHope.org. I'm a competitive powerlifter and Highland Games athlete and strength coach. Rock on. And today our guest is uh, Dr. Bill Eben. Um, Bill's a fellow of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He's an associate professor in the Department of Health, Exercise, Science, and Sport Management at uh, University of Wisconsin Parkside. And uh, I'll let you take it from there, uh, Dr. Eben. What, what's, uh, <laughs> how would you describe yourself as an introduction? Oh, I, I've got uh, a background in strength and conditioning as a strength and conditioning coach, and then also uh, I've got a background in sports psychology. I've done some uh, some of that kind of work, and then more recently, for the last four years, I've, I've, I teach and uh, do research in strength and conditioning and applied sports psychology. So, kind of a broad background in mostly strength and conditioning and biomechanics and sports psych. Right. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to uh, pick Dr. Evans' brain in just a moment. I know, Rob, you wanted to read um, something, some reader mail, and I have one little bit of news. Uh, and then yeah. we're going to jump more into Dr. Eben, uh, you know, with some questions. Yeah, um, well, a couple things. One's, uh, you know, I like to read uh, questions every week. Uh, questions are, well, if, if the letter contains questions, but this one doesn't. Um, but it's just a letter that we got. Um, I'm trying to find it right now. Hold on. <laughs> professional. <laughs> no, this is this is extremely professional. Yeah, I think I've lost the damn email. Do you have it, Lonnie? Yeah, I, I can. Uh, I can. Sorry, I, I I had it and now I don't. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, let's see, because he sent us uh, Sam. Uh, oh, I. Oh no. Now you know what? I, I I don't have the email on me, but I had my reply that I sent to him. So, in light of the fact that I've totally uh, screwed up here, um, like I said, I oh. have it. I don't know where it is now. But anyway, his okay. name is Sam. Uh, right, Sam Monrad. He's a he's a Kiwi. He's a New Zealander. Yeah, and he, uh, and he sent uh, us a nice email. Yeah, he wrote us in, and you know, and uh, loves listening to it, and says that we've uh, filled up his knowledge bag sufficiently for the time being, and uh, you know, he's very very appreciative, and uh, you know, he actually, I, I think he signed up as a supporter, did he not, Lonnie? He, yeah, he did. In fact, he he uh, he told me via email that he we could read this e- read his email. So here we go, Sam. He says, uh, hey guys, I've listened to every single one of your episodes, and I thought that enough is enough, so I gained so much info and advice from your show that I thought becoming a supporting member is the least I can do. I'm 32, I've recently done my first 
competitive bodybuilding event and won the overall in a NABA event. Nice. Kudos to you. NABA is tough. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and I'm training hard to prepare for competing uh, after the new year. You guys, uh, your show always inspires me uh, to give it death in the house of iron, and I look forward to all the upcoming episodes. Thanks heaps from an iron brother from another mother. Cheers, you Sam. Know, um, for the people, our listeners out there who are, you know, uh, bodybuilding enthusiasts, followers, and I assume all of you to some degree are, NABA, for you young young bucks out there, NABA actually predates, you know, IFBB, NPC, any of those federations. Um, you know, that's that, that NAB is the federation over in uh, the UK and so forth that where most of the golden gods of, of yesteryear kind of got their start. So... You know, so to this day, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 you know, carry on in its own guise in different ways. And, you know, so, you know, he just took a NABA title. So that's, that's pretty cool, man. That's really cool. I always like to hear, you know, when guys are doing NABA, that's awesome. Yeah. It feels old school to me, but it's very hardcore stuff. Oh, for sure. For sure. And the news piece that I wanted to, uh, bring up just because it's of interest, certainly. And this is, this is where I think I lost the letter because I was, too busy fiddling around trying to <laughs> find a good piece here. Um, the biggest steroid bust ever in Poland um, just happened, and it's, it, they said that it's going to put a massive disruption on your, the European black market. Um, there was over 250 police officers and custom agents were involved, the largest enforcement operation to target illegal steroid distribution in the history of Poland. Um, anyway, so they... Uh, Arrested a bunch of people, confiscated all sorts of human growth hormone and all steroids that they said was in value of ten, uh, excess of 10 mil. Uh, confiscated all sorts of like uh, cars and so forth. Froze 2.2 million in assets, assets and bank accounts. Um, wow! And a bunch of people involved in uh, past and present strength athletes and so. So I mean, it's uh, you know, hey, it's um, um, you know, for for those of us that <laughs> don't partake. And again, <laughs> right. we're, 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 we're neither here nor there on that. Well, I was going to say, Rob, after all those years at Muscle Mag International, I mean, how I, – is Poland like a noted source for some of this uh, I don't stuff? Know. Or? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I certainly know they have a great healthy death metal scene there, but I mean – as far as I mean, I, I you know apparently it is. And, well, lucky and, for you, metal metal music is not uh, is is not illegal. Well, I was gonna say now now all the guys in the bands I listen to are gonna be uh, twenty pounds lighter when they go on tour. You yeah. think? Okay. Well, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, yeah. it's just kind of interesting, and like I said, it's gonna be interesting to see how that does play out because they're again they're calling for that to disrupt all the the, the, the black market over there. So okay, um, well, I, I, go yeah. ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, again, we're neither here nor there about anabolic steroids and its use. It's a personal decision. But uh, even for those of us who don't, as I say, partake, it's certainly interesting to see how this stuff plays out and so forth, you know, and uh, all the, you know, the weight training, bodybuilding, strength training uh, scene, because certainly a lot of the, you know, guys over in Europe are big into that. So we'll see. I'll try and uh, keep you guys informed if there's any big uh, developments in the coming weeks about that. Right. Well, before we get to Dr. Evan, I've got one piece of news. I think all three of you guys are going to find this sort of, uh, it's sort of interesting or humorous because it's just that sort of cliche kind of thing that you hear in the news about bodybuilding. This is from the Lacrosse Tribune, so this is Wisconsin stuff. It says, now you guys, <laughs> I read this, I couldn't help but snicker. I mean, it's, the story itself is, it's just such hyperbole and it's so overwritten, but Anyway, it says, couple recovering after bodybuilder attack. Now, 
They make it sound like grizzly bear attack or something. Oh, yeah. It says, a Southern California man and his wife have been released from a hospital three days after they were beaten at their home by a naked 300-pound bodybuilder. Uh, 22-year-old Ruben Arzu is in police custody at a hospital awaiting booking on suspicion of attempted homicide. His condition was available Tuesday. Apparently, uh, it took two officers, two stun gun blasts, and four sets of handcuffs to restrain this guy during what they, <laughs> what they call a Saturday night rampage. Uh, <laughs> it says, Maybe the um, GNC was closed. He knew the guy had a tub of protein or something. Yeah, I don't, it, it actually says uh, the couple did not know their attacker. So uh, it says uh, the couple was attacked when they came home from a party and found this guy, Arzu, naked on their front porch. Uh, <laughs> The 35-pound husband suffered head trauma. His wife had facial injuries, multiple cuts to the head. Uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah. Bodybuilder, well, maybe, naked 300-pound well, bodybuilder attack. Look out. Well, maybe he was just practicing his compulsories on the front porch because the lighting was good or something. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I mean, don't know. Gravely mistook his intent. Yeah, I don't, yeah I don't serious know. business there. So, uh, yeah, random naked 300-pound bodybuilders in the news. Must be an Iron Radio listener. Oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> It's from Lacrosse Tribune. It's interesting. Okay, so anyway, if, if we just change gears to something a little more serious, again, we've got Dr. Bill Eben with us here, and um, I know that Dr. Eben he's won awards to NSCA for his research and whatnot. But uh, for, before we start talking about strength research, I wanted to actually just uh, ask if you could share your personal uh, athletics background uh, with with the listeners, like you know. What did you personally do? Uh, because most of the people that we have on, whether they're a scientist or an athlete, obviously the athletes, you know, they're drawn to strength or strength training at some point in their uh, their youth or in their adult years. So what's what's your story? Well, my story is that when I, I grew up in kind of a rough blue-collar neighborhood in northeast Wisconsin in a paper mill town, and if you didn't perform resistance training and get bigger and stronger, you'd get ambushed on the way to the swimming pool or the way to the school. So... That was my first motivation for training was to uh, deal with some of the physical conflicts and stuff present in the neighborhood. So it's kind of an odd start or odd motive initially. Um, but my father performed resistance training quite a bit, which is unusual back in that generation. And so he got me into it. And a quick little story. We didn't have a lot of money, but he took uh, he made weight plates out of poured concrete. He poured concrete into an oil drain pan for you know the automobile when he changed the oil around metal pan, and you put uh, steel um, cores in there, you know, um, steel pipe in the middle, and pour concrete in there, reinforced concrete, and basically the oil pan served as a form for pouring these, making these concrete plates. And then hung the barbell on cable outside on the clothes pole for hanging the wash, and uh, the barbell was always hung there at the lowest depth that we'd go for squatting, and then so I could squat on my own and send in the squat and then descend and then when I wanted to get out of there, you just sort of fall out the bottom. The cable would hold the barbell there. So I had this barbell with the uh, concrete weight plates and we'd continue to, as we got stronger, continue to pour concrete weight plates. So that's the earliest uh, start with resistance training and, and why I got cool. involved. So you were like a pioneer of uh, functional training or something. That sounds like the kind of things people are trying to do now just to be cool. And you were doing it offensively. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and low buck training too. I'd have to say because it was uh, it didn't cost us a whole lot, but absolutely. And you know, somehow and then even I knew that having your feet on the ground when you're performing resistance training was uh, was somewhat important. You know, that, you know I was you know, probably 10, 12 years old when I started that. 
Right. Necessity is the mother of invention. You know. Great, great. <laughs> yeah. Fortress, I know you're. You actually started lifting for similar reasons, didn't you? For sort of a, a self-protection kind of thing. Is that right? Well, I mean, no. I mean, initially it was basically for as a you know assistance towards my football in high school, but. Um, I, I think it was many years later when you start, you know, you start to looking at more of the psycho- psychology of maybe where, you know, something might, you know, first, uh, the inception of something might come from. And certainly I recognize, like I said, at least several years later that, you know, maybe, you know, somewhere in the deep recesses of my subconscious, it might come from a place because, you know, I, I grew up in a quite rough part of Toronto, um, and was bullied a heck of a lot, actually. And, uh, I used to get in, you know, physical altercations probably like weekly um, for several years. So, um, and I was actually a minority in this particular community, um, and so I used to get ganged up a lot and stuff like that. And so, and kind of being a loner, you know, of course, that just you know uh, magnifies the problem. So, yeah. So, in looking back, it was kind of interesting to kind of again trace maybe some of the more the uh, the psychology behind you know where some of that fire burns from. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, let's switch gears just a little bit here because the reason I asked uh, Dr. Ebbett to be on the show is to talk about research a little bit. And uh, one of the things that I just wanted to kind of ask was, I mean, I, you've had an active research career. I thought we could start with something that will sort of lend itself to our topic of the day, and that's just can you explain to listeners why, why research on our population is important? I mean, what's, you know, why do you have interest in research and you know, right. for strength athletes in general, whether they're powerlifters or bodybuilders or strongmen or maybe people just in football looking, you know, for, for resistance training as right. an adjunct, you know, where does research fit in all that? Yeah, my initial curiosity came as a, as a high school and college athlete, especially back in the 70s. I, I went to the library in high school to look at all the books on, on resistance training, and there was only five at the community library, and most of it was bodybuilding, and I recognized to some degree even then that that didn't have a lot of application or some limits to the application for you know, athletics. And so I think it's pretty early on in my life that I kind of hungered for some data, for you know, concrete data and to know what to do and what worked best and not best, what didn't work so well, I should say. But so I think we've come a long way, though, since then, because that really the late 70s in this country was really the advent of sports science research, at least uh, – anaerobic sports science, strength power, uh, hypertrophy sports science research. There had been you know, some, a fair bit of aerobic work that had been done in the 60s and 70s. But, uh, so there wasn't a lot back then, and that piqued my curiosity. Now, I just got the latest journal of strength and conditioning research, and I didn't count up how many uh, articles were in there, but we've gone to, uh, the publication has gone from 6 to 12 volumes now annually, and there's a lot of articles in there. So there's a lot of science being done. It's really... Uh, come a long way with uh, um, sports science research come a long way compared to where it once was. And I think a lot of good work's being done. Mm -hmm. So maybe just for listeners, could you explain some of the, what are some of the categories of the the kinds of research that would appear in a, you know, the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research or something, you know, something like that? Yeah, it's pretty broad. The publication's pretty broad. It used to be called the Journal of Applied Sports Science Research, and that was a pretty applicable title because it is a lot of different um, uh, applied types of sports science research. Um, I guess you got to look at the title of General Strength and Conditioning Research and see it pretty broadly. But there's there are studies on nutritional supplements. There's quite a few of those always. There's a lot on what I call ergogenic potential or potentiation phenomena. 
So non-consumable things that potentiate performance, such as potentiating strength. There's a little bit of sports psychology I see in the latest uh, edition of the journal Strength and Conditioning Research. Um, there is oxygen consumption and aerobic metabolism and things like that. So there's, there's studies on power cleans and a lot of biomechanical studies on kind of quantifying the differences between exercises and EMG studies. So there's a little bit of everything. And things that apply to sport like uh, testing and rugby or you know, different testing protocols or you know, quite, a, quite a variety really. Right, sport-specific kinds of things. <clears throat> yeah, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about how, you know, it, it felt like when we were kids in the in the 70s, you know, sports like basketball and stuff, the physiques, you know, they just didn't look the same. And, and there was a lot of that sort of misconception that weight training could make you bulky or stiff or lose flexibility or, uh, you know, and we've talked about how now it, basically I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of any sport that doesn't employ resistance training as an adjunct. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think it's probably the biggest tool in the toolbox, you know, and the most important one to use. And ironically, there's a study in the general strength conditioning research that just came out, I got my edition today, just came out recently, that compares the effect of resistance training and static stretching on flexibility. And I didn't read the study, I just saw the title, so I don't know what the answer is. But <laughs> I think the implication of that is that at least somebody thinks that resistance training may actually improve uh, flexibility, which, you know, if done right, it, it certainly does in a lot of cases. Right. And, you know, and I could just just give a shout out for uh, some listeners that uh, if you if you're interested in recent science and some, you know, the application and you're a little less savvy with some of the research methodologies or, you know, some of the nuances in, in, in that, uh, the NSCA also has uh, instead of just the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, they have just the Strength Conditioning Journal. Right. So that's more practitioner oriented type stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, in addition to that, they have the Performance Training Journal, which is even more practitioner-friendly. So they've got three publications, and then they also feature topics online on their Hot Topics um, segment of their website. So there's really four different sources, and three of them are highly applied. And even the General Strength and Conditioning Research, I think, you know, many people could read that and, and get the general concept from the article, even without a science background. So they got a lot, yeah. of, a lot of good stuff. So, Bill, would you would you suggest that listeners, if they're just uh, strength enthusiasts, should they attempt to read research or should they stick to the practitioner journals? What would you suggest? I would clearly say attempt to read the research, uh, and you know, perhaps that's a reflection of my personality. But I want to know stuff. I always have. I want to be informed, and you know, I think I think we all should be if we're dealing with our own body or working with other people and prescribing exercise. And such, I mean, we have a responsibility really to to be well informed, and the information I think is available to most people. So, um, yeah, why not? You know, why not try mm-hmm. to be informed as possible? Mm-hmm. There's misinformation out there too, you know. So it's kind of a battle, really. And there's a lot of people with an agenda to make money on products and supplements and stuff, and we have to kind of combat that with uh, research in a way, and you know, it's a tough battle. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. I, I think it was, uh, Oxford has a center for evidence-based medicine, uh, Oxford University, and they were, they were saying that 1,500 new papers appear on the National Library of Medicine daily. Of course, they're not all in, you know, strength and conditioning or nutrition, you know, related to our interests, but imagine 1,500 a day, and they were actually suggesting that roughly every two weeks, that you should try to stay up on what's coming out in your field because it's just, you know, it's developing so quickly. 
So it really is. Yeah, I was just reading an editorial in the local uh, campus newspaper in another discipline about how, in a way, there's too much research that it's reducing the uh, the uh, impact of the classic studies because there's just the volume of research is so great. And I'm not saying we're at that point yet in, in sports science research, but you know, it's, there's a, getting to be a lot, and then it's hard to discern you know, what the good stuff is and what the less valuable papers are. But one way around that is reading the review articles or meta-analyses in the review articles for your for your listeners who may not be aware, just comprehensive reviews of all the data on a, our research studies that have been done on a specific topic. So in a way, it's a nice summary. Someone looked at all the research and then summarized it, and the meta-analysis is similar, except it adds some statistical evaluation to it. So I would hunt down those types of papers to make life a little bit easier, a little bit more economical in your search for information. Check out those review papers on different topics. And I hate to go on and on, but the NSCA and the ACSM and places like that have position statements, too, that do a nice job of summarizing the current state of affairs on different topics. So there are some concise ways of getting information. Right. I'll tell you, I was I was just showing a group of students a, the ACSM's annual review of performance genomics, you know, and how individual uh, variations in, you know, basically people's family history and the genes that they carry affect their performance or their vulnerabilities for certain injuries and things like that. And that's going to be changing the field. But I would suggest actually, listeners, you might want to, I mean, it's touchy business to say if, if you're confused when you read uh, an abstract, like on PubMed or Medline or something, a lot of people, they tend to go to the bottom. The researchers will say, this means that, or, you know, we conclude that, and they'll give you a little bit of conclusion or how it applies, you know, a little external, you know, uh, application there. And I think for the most part, it's safe to go ahead and take their conclusions. I mean, unless that you read through the methods and you're savvy and you can find, you know, maybe some something to critique, uh, you know, at least you're talking about a source of something that's peer-reviewed. And um, although it's not completely free of bias, because let's face it, scientists are human beings and, you know, they... They, you can't remove all politics and bias and things like that, but at least it's an honest attempt and probably our best source of information. So if you have to, you know, go to the bottom of a paragraph and read what the conclusion, you know, what they're going to interpret it for you, at least it's a step in the right direction. Because actually, Bill, that's interesting that you said you'd read books even in high school. Because I actually, I was the same thing. I was so fascinated myself that I would go read some things and I, my sister was going to Kent State University and I'd actually go over to the library and I discovered science journals probably when I was a senior in high school you know and I was actually I'm like oh this is pure juicy stuff look at this stuff you know and and uh, it's just the kind of stuff that was I didn't understand a lot of it when I was looking at it at the time you know the, some of the Great. statistical analyses or equipment or what have you but uh, and I remember by the time I, I was learning from people like Pete Lemon, who was my advisor for years, I actually had seen his name in magazines and in science journals before he was my prof. And I just, I'm looking around at the fellow students like, oh my God, you know who that is? You know, I'm like geeking out because I was actually reading some of this stuff. And I, I think in a way you sort of stumble upon this idea that, you know, research is this world of, you know, peer review, sort of double checked for, you know, quality, just to make sure that the researchers didn't do anything stupid or, or horrendously biased, you know, and it's just a gold mine, you know, yeah. Absolutely. And even Google Scholar, things that are available, I think, to most people, I mean, we have access to databases because we subscribe to them, subscribe to them via our library at our university. But I think, you know, the general public can get some good you know, access to databases. Google Scholar or Medline or things like that sometimes and do searches and find out, literature searches and find out, you know, all of the 
information in the world, pretty much in an area of interest. Right. And I agree well, with you. You can read the summaries and you know, read the you know, conclusions and things like that and get a pretty good handle on what the research is about, the article is about, without having to spend two or three hours kind of pouring through every detail of the article. Right. And I'll tell you, when we have our discussion of the day about, you know, just we're already kind of dipping into it, of course, but, you know, using science to your advantage and stuff. So sort of evidence-based practice, if if you will. Uh, right. You know, we, we can have a discussion, too, about gurus and, you know, other sources of information, because we've we've discussed this before, Phil and Rob and I, that, uh, you know, sometimes you get these sort of 20-year-olds who, you know, <laughs> they're big fish in a little pond or they're a trainer or they, they've had some athletic uh or strength accomplishments on their own, and they, they they just set up a blog and they start populating forums with you know this uh, you know personal opinion that they they really don't understand what evidence means. You know, profession even professional opinion is a very weak form of evidence, and you know they I think they do uh, more damage than they do good. And I think probably bodybuilding and strength training is since I've been involved in it at least there's always been that sort of element. You know, sort of the guru element. Uh, and unfortunately, they speak with great um, vindication, you know, and I think that that could become an issue. But we'll, we'll talk about that uh, after the break. Uh, before we do go to break, though, I wanted to ask you, uh, and this is a hard question, so I'm going to apologize in advance. But what are some of your favorite or what do you think some of the most notable findings um, in strength and conditioning research in the last several years? I mean, this could be stuff that your group has done or things that other people have done. Um, can you think of anything that really comes to mind, some of your favorite uh, findings that were surprising or might change the way that people practice, you know, their resistance training? Yeah, there's a lot in there in that question. Um, I guess if I'm talking about other people's research, you know, I like, the, I like all of the work that's been done on specificity. I think it's very conclusive that we need to train in a way that's specific to what we're training for. That includes the types of muscle acts of most. Um, you know, the, the strategies we employ, the, the velocity or speed or the amount of force development used. I think that that specificity work is really valuable. I like the work on program design and periodization, and there's been a fair bit lately on nonlinear models of periodization, but the idea that we need to cycle the volume and decrease it over the course of time so we can reduce fatigue while we also increase the intensity and the exercise specificity complexity and there, that, that work has uh, come a long way from you know, very little work having been done you know, 30 years ago to now I think we have a pretty good idea of what we need to do and how we can do it. And that there's more than one way to skin the cat. You know, there's linear periodization and nonlinear models, and both are effective. So there's some examples of things that other people are doing a lot of that I think uh, is really valuable work. Um, in my own lab, we do work with plyometrics and what I call potentiation phenomena. I do work with um, muscle activation strategies and how there's gender differences, especially with respect to sport performance and how men and women have differences in their hamstring to quad ratios or activation ratios when they jump and land and cut and things like that, and how training can change those ratios and how resistance training in particular is valuable uh, to change those ratios. So I've got my own stuff that I'm more familiar with um, that I could talk about eventually too here. And then lately I've been uh, doing some research on uh, stock car racing, which probably has very little interest to your your audience, but not many people have done much with it, so we're starting to quantify a little bit of the strength demands for the stock car driver, for example. 
yeah, one more sport to uh, <laughs> that's going to be relying on strength training more and more, right? Yeah, we have been, right? And I think they see that at the highest levels that, you know, that staying fit gives you a competitive advantage and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, if we could touch on the, the potentiation thing, um, as a phenomenon, you know, I, there's a lot of debate about, I've even heard people say, you know, is this a real phenomenon? Or I, I guess I would ask you, what's the sort of magnitude there? Or what are some of the strategies where you can get sort of some kind of neuromuscular potentiation and in, improve performance in sort of a peak type, you know, exertion? Right. I divide it in three different areas. One would be the post-activation uh, phenomenon or post-activation potentiation concept, which historically has been called complex training. People have called it contrast training, but the notion that you train with a higher load event and follow that up with a lighter load event, oftentimes plyometric or something ballistic, that you can potentiate the ballistic event and the performance. A lot of work's been done with that in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, I did a literature review with Phil Watson at Michigan University. We wrote a literature review back in the I think it was about 1997 or so, and at that point there was very little that was done. It was sort of a concept. Now there's been dozens of studies that have been done. Uh, and I think you find from that that there is probably a small potentiation effect. This isn't huge. But the reason I think it's valuable is people will, you know, athletes and exercisers will take any advantage they can get, even if it's 2 or 3%. And then in addition to these post-activation potentiation concepts, I've kind of coined a concept or a term called concurrent activation potentiation, which in all of our studies we show somewhere between a 3 to 32% increase in the performance measure we're assessing. Now, a lot of that's rate of force development and for explosive performance, but some of it's peak force development. But the peak force that you can develop with this concurrent activation potentiation is lesser in magnitude. No, yeah, and this concurrent activation, just to define it, it's a little bit uh, complicated, but basically there's a part of our brain that's responsible for kind of triggering the muscle activation of each part of our body. And uh, if we if we are trying to perform, let's say, a squat and we're using our knee extensors as one muscle group that's being activated, this idea of concurrent activation potentiation suggests that if you activate another muscle group by firing up that area of your brain, such as punching your jaw, there's muscles that are responsible for doing that. Part of your brain that's responsible for clenching your jaw theoretically overflows a little bit to the part of your brain that's responsible for activating your knee extensor muscles. And so we can do things concurrently with the prime mover activation, in this case of my example, the knee extensors. We can activate other muscle groups concurrently and get a little extra um, neural juice to the prime movers. And we've done uh, half a dozen studies on this and have shown that this works to varying degrees. And there's a lot of different um, potentiation strategies. You can clench the jaw, clench the fist, pull the barbell down into your traps when you're squatting and try to use your upper body, you know, a little bit more, get a little bit more activation. But in every case, we found that it works for men and occasionally find that it doesn't work for women. Uh, sometimes it does. But that, that whole area of potentiation concurrent, so I lift with a mouth guard, you know, at times. And you can't do this all the time, I don't think, because the intensity is too high. You can't be chopping down hard on the mouth guard for every single set. And you know, you don't need to. You need to do it on the hardest reps and in the sticking region of any exercise. You know, bite the mouth guard hard, and, and you can. I, I think you can feel it. And uh, there's probably some distraction phenomena there, too, you know, when you're enduring your hardest reps and you're 
blood lactates are accumulating and it's difficult and you're focusing on getting your mouth guard and you believe that it works and, you know, it probably gets you through a little bit of that, you know, psychological difficulty of some of those harder reps too. Now the final thing, just to summarize, in addition to post-activation potentiation and concurrent activation potentiation is something that I call antagonistic condi conditioning contractions. I shouldn't say I call it that. Other people have called it that too. But that we can somehow knock out an antagonist muscle group so we can get a better performance from an antagonist muscle group, you know, so you can perform better during training, handle more load, for example. And the, the literature is inconclusive on that, but we've done a couple studies where we found that you can kind of knock out the antagonist a little bit in order to allow the agonist to perform uh, with more force or power. Mm. Well, well, I'll tell you. Let me. I want to go back to your second point. It's lingering in my mind is, and I know this this is going to call for a little <laughs> stretching, you know. And I don't want to, uh, you know, you to come up with anything that's got some poor external validity here. But do you think uh, competitive powerlifters? Could they be at an advantage if they were to use a mouthpiece for a like in competition, maybe not just in a set, but like during competition? Are they gonna are they gonna put twenty thirty pounds on their bench press because they're doing that? Um, not twenty or thirty pounds, but uh, you know, uh, a, a couple percent perhaps. I absolutely believe that, and you know, most people do it anyway. They just don't have the mouth guard. They're not doing it systematically, and they don't they don't know why they're doing it. But a lot of you know competitive exerciser, lifter, people lifters, people who train hard, whether it's a competitive power lifter or another strength power athlete, will clench their jaw and they'll do things like that. And so we're basically teaching people to do that systematically and do that during the sticking region and, and uh, doing it forcefully and the, you know, the mouth guard allows you to clench the jaw more forcefully. So I believe it, uh, it does, absolutely does help. And some pro athletes do this sort of thing as well. People are wearing uh, you know, oral splints and mouth guards and things like that. Baseball players, for example, are, are starting to do that when they bat. And uh, so this, this concept, I think, is taking hold a little bit. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I've actually seen quite a few powerlifters that wear them. Oh, yeah? Yeah. 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 Interesting. In competitions that I've been in. I guess there'd be a little bit of familiarization involved, too, because you wouldn't want to be so distracted fiddling with your mouthpiece that you get you get stapled to the bench, you know. But, yeah, it could be cool. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and take a brief break. And when we come back, I, I just want to talk about a, a little bit more general issue, which is, you know, how to use science to steer your training, basically. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. 
Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back, listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry and uh, Rob Fortress-Fortney and Phil Stevens. And we've got Dr. Bill Eben with us. And in the second part of the uh, program here, we're just going to talk uh, about our topic of the day, which is uh, how to use science to steer your training. Uh, one of the questions I often got when I was writing uh, very frequently for like T Nation uh, and some other online strength-related sites was, you know, how do you read research or how do I know? And or sometimes I would hear a disturbing comment about, oh, you know, scientists they say one thing today and another thing tomorrow. They don't know what the heck's going on. So those things sort of make me sad. And I thought what we could do is just talk about, you know, how to use science and what's good science and and what's pseudoscience and, and those sorts of things. So the first, and again, anybody uh, on the line here, of course, can jump in on this, but. What are the group's thoughts about how to identify a guru? Like, who's legit and who's, um, you know, full of it, basically? Because there's a lot of, <coughs> a lot of bunk on the internet. So, I don't know. What do you think, Rob? You got anything to say about that? Well, you know, it, yeah, coming from my base, you know, base core bodybuilding, certainly, you know. Coming up in the, in the era where the kind of the guru was becoming the thing in, in the sport, um, yeah, I have a lot of feelings on those guys. <laughs> Just you know, there there certainly is legitimate guys out there, um, you know. But unfortunately, I think the people who are listening most to those type of guys are the people that don't have enough experience and base knowledge to really <laughs> be able to filter out. Yeah. Who are the yeah. ones that actually have something, you know, something worthwhile to say, um, and, and the people that don't? Um, because conversely, a lot of the people that don't listen to gurus are the ones that don't need to because they have a lot of experience, and, and a lot of the gurus are just spouting the same stuff, you know, that's been rehashed a billion times by the same people. Um, certainly, that's not the case for you know all of them, like I say. But um, you know, like my during my time at Muscle Mag and so forth, I think Muscle Mag was one of the kind of the the early. Uh, Publications actually that you know gave a lot of uh, gave voice you know through the pages uh, for a lot of who were at the time the initial kind of gurus you know and like the the um, question and answer pages that were given to a lot of those guys and so forth and a lot of them still are around the scene um, I still see their work and I still see photos of them at all the shows and they're still working with guys and a lot of them have just kind of gone away or I guess moved on to <laughs> different. Uh, you know, industries certainly a lot of them have fled the industry because they've almost killed some people. So, um, yeah, and again, not mentioning names, but um, yeah, it, it's it's important to kind of understand. I think I think interestingly enough, also you you certainly want to if if you're going to listen to somebody, you want somebody I think that has kind of a you get a lot of guys who come to it just because they're looking for money signs and they don't really have a base um, you know background in strength training, weight training. Um, and they, they just take, you know, they might be very, very well versed in, you know, in the, whatever it is that they do, but they kind of bring it to instead of having the base being the weight training and that type of thing. So I think you want to kind of see if the person has a healthy mix of those two things. And you certainly, know what, Rob, would, yes. if I can just, if I can just insert, so that's number one, I think red flag to look for is bias, right? right. So, some kind of financial bias. 
So, okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and just the other thing I was going to mention is that, um, like I say, conversely to what I just said, you get the guys who think by virtue of the fact that, you know, they've prepared for a couple bodybuilding competitions and that, you know, they've achieved moderate success, which more often than not for those types of guys was just because they used everything under the sun. And for some reason, they, they downplay just the, the, um, the huge, um, advantages that were achieved, you know, despite some of the things that they do. So they think that they know what they're doing, which again also can be problematic. So again, it, it, it's, I think from my point of view, it's somebody who's a blending of both. Um, and again, I know I, I kind of kiss your rump a lot on this show, Lonnie, but certainly <laughs> Dr. Lonnie Lauer. I mean, <laughs> right. you, but no, but I mean, you, I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm just laying on the, the sincere, I mean, you're exactly kind of what I'm referring to. You know, you have your roots, in bodybuilding and weight training, I mean, you are of that breed, you know, well, but I'll you've got you what, all this science stuff. And, and seriously, I mean, that's, that, that's such a winning combination, um, to the level that you've taken both. And, and that's kind of what our listeners, if you're going to, I, I, you know, look for those types of people. The people have some, and again, it doesn't have to be even necessarily be formal training, but somebody who has a good base of both and, and like I say, the more you kind of read around and uh, experience what you're, you know, what you're doing, and be consistent to what you're doing, the more you'll uh, develop that filter, just like everything else, that you'll be able to kind of spot the phonies and, uh, you know, spot the real deal, the people who actually, you know, practice what they preach. Well, so. let's 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 build that filter. So number one, we had uh, an element of bias. Number two, I think what you're saying, at least partly, is. A lack of education, frankly. Some of the guys giving advice, they haven't had enough hours under the bar, you know, or like you might call it competitive cred or experience or coaching or whatever, or lack of, you know, like you say, formal education. So we've got bias, we've got lack of education, um, and I agree with you 100%. One of the things that I always see is... I see these certain gurus where sometimes they're 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 mildly educated or you know they've got some background, but it's always a huge red flag to me when they'll they'll say I do it this way, so you do it like this too. It will work. Well, obviously, you know, we were just talking earlier in the show about performance genomics or nutrigenomics. Just because something works for you doesn't mean it's going to work for all of your clients, and they, they seem to have that sort of basis for their advice. You know, that it works for me, it'll work for you. And like you said, Rob, especially when you're talking about androgens and growth hormone and, you know, all, you know different pharmaceutical ergogens and things like that. Yeah, yeah you, you can't, you know, you, you can't just apply that to some 16 you know, year old kid who's, yeah. who's completely natural and he's a, he's a buck 20 soaking wet, you know. And, you know, like to use this in a kind of a martial arts kind of scenario, the, the classic example would be the whole Bruce. Uh, Lee and his development of what became his kind of old modified discipline, which was Jeet Kune Do, you know, and the whole thing is that certainly that, that, that discipline has not taken off, you know, and, and I think, and certainly there are still people practicing it, and I'm not uh, putting it down at all. I don't really know much about it, but beyond the fact that it has, you know, um, a basis in like Wing Chun Kung Fu and stuff, but, but the point being is, yeah, it, it's, he tailored that to all his own attributes. And as many people have written over the years, um, people who've, who've, you know, taken to it and given themselves to it for several years, um, just because it worked for him uh, doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And certainly that's, I think, what you're talking about here is just, again, make sure that the person's not just automatically saying this is working on me. Or, you know, what? another thing that I want to bring up, and I just, before I let somebody else speak here for a minute because I'm kind of monopolizing, but the, the, the guys that experiment, 
you know, use use other people's bodies as you know as as lab experiments. Um, and, and there's a lot of those type of guys too. Certainly in Toronto in the in the mid early '90s, uh, early mid '90s, there were there were there were a few of those type of guys who, again, alluding to what I said before, that almost literally almost killed some competitors. Um, and when you heard what they were doing, um, it was obvious that these these people. We're not using their own bodies for this type of experimentation. You know, they're doing kind of wacky things. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, that shows obviously a, a serious lack of character and concern for anybody else. And, and, you know, those type of people, God steer clear and, you know. Well, sure. If they had any kind of healthcare license or anything, it'd be revoked, right? I mean, so. No, exactly. Uh, un- unfortunately, it puts them at, at an, uh, in a, in a very precarious position because they really have very little to lose. By right. doing, yeah, I know what you're saying, bizarre uh, or extreme dehydration procedures or electrolyte manipulations or exactly, exactly. mix it with the drugs or, oh, goodness, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, so. uh, let, let's get Dr. Eben in on this. Uh, what, do you, what do you think um, as far as um, how to identify a guru or how consumers, you know, how, how to be a savvy consumer and use science to help steer your, your training choices? I agree with a lot of what, with what uh, Rob was saying there and, with what's been said so far, I think you look at the mix of certifications and education and things like that, and while they don't always tell the whole story, you try to get as good of a person as you can. I mean, if you're going to follow someone, try to get someone with as good of credentials as you can. I, I get concerned sometimes when the message is delivered slickly. You know, if someone's got the gift of gab and can deliver the message slickly, then I think you really need to look even harder at what the message is saying. So. Um, you know, some people just have that and don't have the credentials, and but are able to articulate ideas well, even if the ideas are faulty. So I think we have to take a look at that. I agree with the whole notion of the conflict of interest and the profit motive. And if someone's got a profit motive, then I examine a little bit closely, more closely, what they're saying, you know, and what their conflict of interest may be. So and those are some things that I think about. Um, ultimately, I think humans are a little bit reductionistic. We make our decisions based on limited amounts of information a lot of time. And I think we not, ought to not do that, especially when it comes to our, our health and well-being. And we have to seek a little bit more information. I tell my you know what? If, if, I, if I could just interject there quickly, is yeah. I, was, I was trying to label some flags of what Rob was saying, whether it's bias or you know lack of education. One of the things that you just said, I think, is huge too, is you know consensus in the literature <laughs> is what drives. Right training choices, not a single new study, even from a reputable group. So, listeners, that's one thing you can really keep in mind is something comes out that's very cool. Hey, it may, in fact, pan out, but a single study is usually not basis to change all of your training. I mean, a single a single good study is more than most of these gurus will use. They're using personal experience, sort of anecdotal, you know, evidence. But uh, I really like what Dr. Evan just said about seek more information uh, you know, or if there's a new study, use caution as you start to pursue that because consensus is what drives responsible practice. So, yeah, that's related to the next point I was going to make too. I teach my students that a you want to seek the research and b you want to seek out what the uh, what the kind of norms are in any professional practice. And so, you know, in the latter point, you're trying to find out what what most people think, what most good people think. And while you can't go talk to most people all the time, you can seek the opinions or, you know, ideas of three, four, five good people. And if you got that and and there's some consensus there, then you can be more comfortable with the practice than if it's just one person's opinion. So that still requires some work. You have to hunt down, you know, the info a little bit. But to the degree you can, you know, what do people, what do good people think on the topic? Because 
can't always find the research. You can't, you know, not all things have been studied. That's you true. You'll find the research, but you can get the ideas of good people, and if there's some agreement, then you can have you know, some certainty that the concept might be good. Right, and I'll tell you that that's a very good point. Sometimes I'll say that some, you know, there are certain topics where science is playing catch up. You know, we're still observing and recording and trying to trying to tease apart and analyze, you know, this phenomenon. But so here's a question for I'm gonna I'm gonna pose this to Phil and Doctor Evan. Uh, so what about the balance between coaching? And science. I mean, on one side, my personal thought is, you know, a coach could say, well, I've done this for 20 years. But, you know, you could say, yeah, and you've done that in a suboptimal way for 20 years, you know. But on the flip side, sometimes the science isn't always there either. So, Phil, what do you think about, you know, because you're an educated guy, but you're also a coach. Um, and so I said, like I said, I think you and, and uh, Dr. Edmund are both good people to ask. What do you think about coaching versus science? How do you balance that out with you, with your uh, clientele? Mm, I, well, I mean, I think that's one of the things I do is um, one of my goals as a coach is not just to make people better, but it's to educate them in how, in how I'm doing that. I, I, Absolutely. I, I, I um, always question the coach that doesn't do that. Um, that, that won't take the time to tell the person why they're doing it, explain why they're doing it, and this is what we're what we're doing it for. If they don't have the knowledge into why, mm-hmm. then they they don't need to be telling you how. Um, yeah, yeah, is my personal opinion. If if you can't question a coach on on why we're doing it, so they they can't give you a solid answer, um, would be a big one for me. How about you, Bill? What do you what do you yeah, think I, about mixing? That's a great point. We want to empower people to know. You know, uh, I think. There's, you know, well, I'm a scientist now. I used to be a strength coach, you know, for quite a while. But you know, I have a real appreciation for science, so I probably see it as a 50-50 split. When I was a strength coach, maybe I didn't see it as quite uh, that way. But you know, we had questions as a strength coach back in the day. Hamstring injuries were common in football, and you know, what I do, I, I emailed every friend I had who was a strength coach and asked them, you know, what kinds of things do you do, what kind of exercises. That's professional practice now is getting the best ideas of people who are doing it. Eventually, when I became a researcher, I researched it and, you know, have some idea now from a research standpoint, you know, what are the best things to do. But I do think it's a combination. You know, you try to get the best ideas and the best people you can find and make your decisions in, in an informed fashion. And sometimes that's practical knowledge and intuition, and sometimes it's, you know, science. But I agree mm-hmm. with you, Lonnie. Science is, you know, always a little bit behind professional practice knowledge, which is why we need you know, good professional practice knowledge in addition yeah. to science. But it's got to be right. a combo. Well, I think if you if, if you look at things through very neutral scientific eyes, you know, there's this massive collection of variables that can affect performance or, you know, phenomenon on how these, these things interact. And you could almost put these into a giant regression equation to try to explain performance, you know. But I think that's where coaching comes in because there are too many of these variables and they're all each going to have a certain amount of weight on how they affect the outcome. And, you know, th- that's the job of a coach is... How do you sort of use a, a mix of intuition and experience and things like that along with some hard evidence and say, this is your best bet. You know, here's a best practice. And then ultimately you've got to observe and record just like a scientist would, right? Any coach would have to say, well, I, I, I took, you know, this or that, let's say, periodization, uh, you know, uh, progression. And boy, that does not work for Jim Smith. It worked for Frank, you know, um, Jones, but it doesn't work for, for Jim Smith. And, and so, you know, you, maybe you have to revise and uh, ultimately the proof's in the pudding. You know, because, I mean, what's science really trying to do but explain the natural world? And, and that's right. kind of what, 
what we're talking about here. It always peeves me when people say, oh, that's science, that's not real world. Well, that, the goal of science, I mean, if it's going to have any kind of external validity at all, is to actually make a difference, to pursue the truth. I don't know. It, it's a... Uh, that's just a little bit of a peeve of mine. But I can also understand how some science is so tightly controlled that, you know, maybe it, when you consider all the things that go into life, it has less of an impact. You could see it in a lab under very controlled conditions and maybe not as much in free-living people, you know. So there is kind of a trade-off there. But Okay, so we've got, a, we've got several things in our filter here. We've got, I'm taking notes as we go, right? So we've got bias. We've got lack of education or maybe converse of that is seek education seek consensus whether it's science or you know professional opinion from coaches who have been around the block um, look for coaches or personally pursue the why and not just the how I'm actually a big fan of that too so I wanted to build on something that Bill touched on uh, the you know he says um, when he talked about always questioning the person with the slick image or the, or the slick uh, you know um message mm-hmm. i think that's more and more now than ever before you know he talked about earlier when, when he first started there was probably 10 books in the bookstore and now in the electronic age um anybody can become a guru overnight and it's usually those people that have the slickest message the, the biggest website and are tooting their horn the most um that, that really throws up a red flag to me because the people that are out there doing it they generally don't have the time to do that and they don't care um, <laughs> yeah, because they're out there doing their job. Um, and you know, if, if somebody's out there pushing themselves that hard and they have that many hours to do that, it makes me question it. If yeah. somebody else is, is tooting their horn for them, I, I'll look at that a little, a little less deep and maybe trust it a bit more. If you're hearing, hearing their name from others instead of the person themselves throwing themselves out there 24 hours a day and mass emails you get seven of them a day and stuff like that right no yeah totally well because you're right i mean that's the that's the curse of the information age of the internet you could set up a website for free you could do tons of social networking to basically free advertising if in like you said if your message is slick enough or exciting enough or motivating and you know what where, where it really irks me what you just said is the hyperbole most young guys, like when I, you know, when I was 13 and started lifting weights, you know, it was right around, right around 1980, 82, in that range. You're literally talking about magazines was your, you know, that was your window into, mm-hmm. you know, what pro bodybuilders were doing or, or that kind of thing. But more and more now, you we're just bombarded with, uh, I guess what I would say, we're flippantly getting our awe buttons pressed. You know, 3,000% better than creatine or, you know, everything has to be some, the new rules of something. You know, not, not, not nothing against some of the people we've had on the show who had books called The New Rules of This or That. But everything's a revolution. Everything's new rules. And science doesn't always work that way. In many ways, it's incremental in its progress. You know, so what's exciting to a researcher like Dr. Evan or, you know, when I do research myself is it may seem like fairly bland to the average person because they're so used to the advertisements and the gurus promising, you know, two inches on their guns in six weeks, you know, or 50 pounds on their bench press by next Sunday. You know what I mean? And then when you give them the truth that science-based, they're sort of nonplussed by that, yeah. you know, not so exciting. Uh, unfortunately, it's true. Yeah. So, and this new age of technology and, and 
this huge voice has given birth in, in this field as well as many others to a whole new group of people that are very, very good at acting the part uh, instead of living the part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's what it's done. I mean, it's so. Yeah, I see that quite a bit, even on TV shows like The Doctors. Now, you hear that those guys are real physicians and this and that, but if, you know, if they're spending all their time in makeup and wardrobe, you know, how much are they really practicing? I don't know. Maybe they are a lot. I could be very wrong, but I know what you're saying, Phil, because these people, they put forth an image online, and then, you know, if you could follow them through the course of a day, I think a lot of people who are very wowed by them would really be hit with a massive dose of sobering reality. You know, oh, this guy doesn't. And he says he's got a facility, and it's it's really not all that, you know, maybe not even a real facility at all. And you know, they're almost famous in this uh, I don't know abstract way. Yeah. You know, they've created their own fame, and it's it's not necessarily deserved because of, like you said, time in the trenches or time spent in the classroom or those sorts of things. So, okay, well, I think we're almost out of time. So, any closing thoughts or? Uh, bits of uh, advice for people about using science to steer their training? You know, for me, um, it's just basically uh, additional to something you guys just kind of touched upon, the whole idea that, um, you know, if if something's too um, wow, freak out, be weary of it. And um, like I said, always look for, um, look behind the curtain, you know, do the whole Wizard of Oz thing a little bit. And uh, if possible, there's usually ways to do it, certainly with the advent of the Internet and all this kind of stuff. Try and pull the curtain a little bit away and uh, try and see the mechanisms that are going on behind that. Because uh, as Phil was kind of saying as well, you know, there's, there's too many people out there who are just trying to, you know, cash in on the buck in this industry before moving on to the next. So, um, yeah, it, it, it try and find somebody who's kind of balanced and, and certainly has a passion for what they're doing. Well, I think part, that's part of the impetus. I think when we started this podcast about three years ago. In fact, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary here in January. Can you believe that? But uh, I, I'll leave people with a Sagan quote, and this rolls off just what Rob just said. But extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? So when you hear something like thousands of percent better or, you know, two inches on your guns in six weeks or that sort of thing, usually go for the more sobering advice from someone that says, you know, everybody may differ, and this may be a year worth of work for what you're after, mister, you know, and those sorts of things. So, again, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Just to build on the three-year anniversary thing a bit, I can tell you that any so-called guru would have quit this long ago. We're going on three years, and... and None of us have, have made a penny. <laughs> There's <laughs> no know, bias there. We've lost money. We've lost money doing it. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. so-called guru would have stuck in that long for so. No, uh, I, I, I know. There's a lack of caring. It's you know, true in the industry. No, so. it's true. The motivation for me has always been that you know I always remember the 16 year old kid that I was, you know that 150 pound kid, you know soaking wet kind of thing, and uh, I was very vulnerable to uh, to BS. Frankly, you know, to nonsense. I'm and in it. I, I'm into it for the chicks. <laughs> How's that working for you? Not too well. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I wanted to thank. Uh, I wanted to thank yeah, Doctor. Can I make Evan. a quick summary co- uh, comment? Absolutely. 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 Yeah, I go. I agree with everything that's been said. I'll approach this from a little bit different standpoint, more of an affective or emotional standpoint. 
I assume your the listeners are are fairly hard workers, people that engage in resistance training, bodybuilding, powerlifting are hard workers. And to me, that's something to take a lot of pride in and hang your hat on your hard work as opposed to, you know, quick fix concepts or or whatever else. And consistent with that, work hard to seek some information. If you think about how much time you train and how hard you work at that, you know, work take, take that amount of time and spend 5% of it working hard at seeking the information. And, and take pride, and this may sound like I'm talking to my students, but take pride in being knowledgeable and feel good about that, you know. Mm-hmm. To me, that's something you can really hang your hat on. To me, I grew up no, that's on hard work and fantastic. That's the best thing you got. You know? yeah. yeah, I love it. I love it. Take take some of that discipline and effort that you you so readily put into the weights in the gym, and yeah, direct it toward learning, learning why, you know, not just the how. Good stuff. Okay, well, thank you everybody for being on today. Yeah, thank you. And uh, good show. Thanks a lot, Bill. Yeah, we'll yeah, see you next. For, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Lonnie. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and protein. You can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes. Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, This is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I've done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.